Chapter Twenty Eight of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Twenty Eight, Comfort in Sorrow. Through cross to crown, and though thy spirit's life trials untold assail with giant strength, good cheer, good cheer, soon ends the bitter strife, and thou shalt reign in peace with Christ at length. Kozagarten. I sooth, we feel too strong in weal to need thee on that road, but woe being come, the soul is dumb that crieth not on God. Mrs. Browning. That afternoon she walked swiftly to the Higgins's house. Mary was looking out for her with a half distrustful face. Margaret smiled into her eyes to reassure her. They passed quickly through the house-place, upstairs, and into the quiet presence of the dead. Then Margaret was glad that she had come. The face, often so weary with pain, so restless with troublous thoughts, had now the faint soft smile of eternal rest upon it. The slow tears gathered into Margaret's eyes, but a deep calm entered into her soul. And that was death. It looked more peaceful than life. All beautiful scriptures came into her mind. They rest from their labors. The weary are at rest. He giveth his beloved sleep. Slowly. Slowly Margaret turned away from the bed. Mary was humbly sobbing in the background. They went downstairs without a word. Resting his hand upon the house-table, Nicholas Higgins stood in the midst of the floor. His great eyes started open by the news he had heard, as he came along the court, from many busy tongues. His eyes were dry and fierce, studying the reality of her death, bringing himself to understand that her place should know her no more, for she had been sickly, dying so long, that he had persuaded himself she would not die, that she would pull through. Margaret felt as if she had no business to be there, familiarly acquainting herself with the surroundings of death which he, the father, had only just learnt. There had been a pause of an instant on the steep crooked stair when she first saw him, but now she tried to steal past his abstracted gaze, and to leave him in the solemn circle of his household misery. Mary sat down on the first chair she came to, and throwing her apron over her head, began to cry. The noise appeared to rouse him. He took sudden hold of Margaret's arm, and held her till he could gather words to speak. They came up thick, and choked, and hoarse. "'Were you with her? Did you see her die?' "'No,' replied Margaret, standing still with the utmost patience. Now she found herself perceived. It was some time before he spoke again, but he kept his hold on her arm. "'All men must die,' said he at last, with a strange sort of gravity, which first suggested to Margaret the idea that he had been drinking, not enough to intoxicate himself, but enough to make his thoughts bewildered. But she were younger than me. Still he pondered over the event, not looking at Margaret, though he grasped her tight. Suddenly he looked up at her with a wild, searching inquiry in his glance, you're sure and certain she's dead. Not in the Duam, as faint? 
She's been so before, often. She is dead, replied Margaret. She felt no fear in speaking to him, though he hurt her arm with his grip, and wild gleams came across the stupidity of his eyes. She is dead, she said. He looked at her still with that searching look, which seemed to fade out of his eyes as he gazed. Then he suddenly let go his hold of Margaret, and, throwing his body half across the table, he shook it and every piece of furniture in the room with his violent sobs. Mary came trembling towards him. "'Get thee gone! Get thee gone!' he cried, striking wildly and blindly at her. "'What do I care for thee?' Margaret took her hand and held it softly in hers. He tore his hair, he beat his head against the hard wood, then he lay exhausted and stupid. Still his daughter and Margaret did not move. Mary trembled from head to foot. At last, it might have been a quarter of an hour, it might have been an hour, he lifted himself up. His eyes were swollen and bloodshot, and he seemed to have forgotten that any one was by. He scowled at the watchers when he saw them. He shook himself heavily, gave them one more sullen look, spoke never a word, but made for the door. "'Oh, father, father,' said Mary, throwing herself upon his arms. "'Not to-night. Any night but to-night. Oh, help me. He's going out to drink again. Father, I'll not leave you. You may strike me, but I'll not leave you. She told me last of all to keep you from drink.' But Margaret stood in the doorway, silent yet commanding. He looked up at her defyingly. "'It's my own house. Stand out of the way, wench, or I'll make you.' He had shaken off Mary with violence. He looked ready to strike Margaret. But she never moved a feature, never took her deep, serious eyes off him. He stared back on her with gloomy fierceness. If she had stirred hand or foot— he would have thrust her aside with even more violence than he had used to his own daughter, whose face was bleeding from her fall against a chair. "'What are you looking at me in that way for?' asked he at last, daunted and awed by her severe calm. "'If you'll think for to keep me from going what gate I choose, because she loved you, and in my own house, too, where I never asked you to come, you're mistaken. It's very hard upon a man that he can't go to the only comfort left.' Margaret felt that he acknowledged her power. What could she do next? He had seated himself on a chair, close to the door, half conquered, half resenting, intending to go out as soon as she left her position, but unwilling to use the violence he had threatened not five minutes before. Margaret laid her hand on his arm. "'Come with me,' she said. "'Come and see her.' The voice in which she spoke was very low and solemn, but there was no fear or doubt expressed in it, either of him or of his compliance. He sullenly rose up. He stood uncertain, with dogged irresolution upon his face. She waited him there, quietly and patiently waited for his time to move. He had a strange pleasure in making her wait, but at last he moved towards the stairs. She and he stood by the corpse. Her last words to Mary were, Keep my father for drink. It cannot hurt her now, muttered he. Naught can hurt her now. Then, 
raising his voice to a wailing cry, he went on, We may quarrel and fall out. We may make peace and be friends. We may clem to skin and bone, and not of all our griefs will ever touch her more. Who's had her portion on em? What we hard work first, and sickness at last. Who's led the life of a dog? And to die without knowing one good piece of rejoicing in all her days. Nay, wench, whatever who has said, who can know not about it, and I mun ha a sup o' drink just to steady me again sorrow. No, said Margaret, softening with his softened manner. You shall not. If her life has been what you say, at any rate she did not fear death as some do. Oh, you should have heard her speak of the life to come, the life hidden with God, that she is now gone to. He shook his head, glancing sideways up at Margaret as he did so. His pale, haggard face struck her painfully. You are sorely tired. Where have you been all day? Not at work? Not at work, sure enough, said he, with a short, grim laugh. Not at what you call work. I were at the committee, till I were sickened out with trying to make fools hear reason. I were fetched to Boucher's wife afore seven this morning. She's bedfast, but she were raven and ragin to know where her dunder-headed brute of a chap was, as if I'd to keep him, as if he were fit to be ruled by me. The damned fool, who has put his foot in all our plans, and I've walked my feet sore with going about for to see men who wouldn't be seen, now the law is raised again us, and I were sore-hearted, too, which is worse than sore-footed. And if I did see a friend who ouse to treat me, I never knew who lay a dying here. Bess, lass, thou'd believe me, thou wouldst, wouldst thou? Turning to the poor dumb form with wild appeal. I am sure, said Margaret, I am sure you did not know. It was quite sudden. But now, you see, it would be different. You do know. You see her lying there. You hear what she said with her last breath. You will not go. No answer. In fact, where was he to look for comfort? Come home with me, she said at last, with a bold venture, half trembling at her own proposal as she made it. At least you shall have some comfortable food, which I'm sure you need. "'Your father's a parson,' asked he, with a sudden turn in his ideas. "'He was,' said Margaret, shortly. "'I'll go, and take a dish of tea with him, since you've asked me. "'I've many a thing I often wish to say to a parson, "'and I'm not particular as to whether he's preaching now or not.' Margaret was perplexed. His drinking tea with her father, who would be totally unprepared for his visitor, her mother so ill— seemed utterly out of the question, and yet if she drew back now, it would be worse than ever, sure to drive him to the gin-shop. She thought that if she could only get him to their own house, it was so great a step gained that she would trust to the chapter of accidents for the next. Good-bye, old wench. We've parted company at last, we have. But thou'st been a blessing to thy father, ever sin thou wert born. Bless thy white lips, lass. They've a smile on em now, and I'm glad to see it once again, though I'm lone and forlorn for evermore. 
he stooped down and fondly kissed his daughter, covered up her face, and turned to follow Margaret. She had hastily gone downstairs to tell Mary of the arrangement, to say it was the only way she could think to keep him from the gin palace, to urge Mary to come too, for her heart smote her at the idea of leaving the poor affectionate girl alone. But Mary had friends among the neighbors, she said, who would come in and sit a bit with her. It was all right. But father— he was there by them, as she would have spoken more. He had shaken off his emotion, as if he was ashamed of having ever given way to it, and had even overleaped himself so much that he assumed a sort of bitter mirth, like the crackling of thorns under a pot. "'I'm going to take my tea with her father, I am.' But he slouched his cap low over his brow as he went out into the street, and looked neither to the right nor to the left, while he tramped along by Margaret's side. He feared being upset by the words, still more the looks, of sympathizing neighbors. So he and Margaret walked in silence. As he got near the street in which he knew she lived, he looked down at his clothes, his hands and shoes. I should may happen I cleaned myself first. It certainly would have been desirable, but Margaret assured him that he should be allowed to go into the yard and have soap and towel provided. She could not let him slip out of her hands just then. While he followed the house-servant along the passage and through the kitchen, stepping cautiously on every dark mark in the pattern of the oilcloth in order to conceal his dirty footprints, Margaret ran upstairs. She met Dixon on the landing. "'How is Mamma? Where is Papa?' Miss was tired and gone into her own room. She had wanted to go to bed, but Dixon had persuaded her to lie down on the sofa and have her tea brought to her there. It would be better than getting restless by being too long in bed. So far, so good. But where was Mr. Hale? In the drawing-room. Margaret went in half-breathless with the hurried story she had to tell. Of course, she told it incompletely, and her father was rather taken aback by the idea of the drunken weaver awaiting him in his quiet study, with whom he was expected to drink tea, and on whose behalf Margaret was anxiously pleading. The meek, kind-hearted Mr. Hale would have readily tried to console him in his grief, but, unluckily, the point Margaret dwelt on most forcibly was the fact of his having been drinking, and her having brought him home with her as a last expedient to keep him from the gin-shop. One little event had come out of another so naturally that Margaret was hardly conscious of what she had done, till she saw the slight look of repugnance on her father's face. "'Oh, Papa!' He really is a man you will not dislike, if you won't be shocked to begin with. But, Margaret, to bring a drunken man home, and your mother so ill. Margaret's countenance fell. I am sorry, Papa. He is very quiet. He is not tipsy at all. He was only rather strange at first. But that might be the shock of poor Bessie's death. Margaret's eyes filled with tears. Mr. Hale took hold of her sweet, pleading face in both his hands, and kissed her forehead. "'It's all right, dear. I'll go and make him as comfortable as I can. And do you attend to your mother. Only, if you can come in and make a third in the study, I shall be glad.' "'Oh, yes. Thank you.' But as Mr. Hale was leaving the room, she ran after him. "'Papa, you must not wonder at what he says. He's an—I mean, he does not believe in much of what we do. 
"'Oh, dear! A drunken infidel weaver!' said Mr. Hale to himself, in dismay. But to Margaret he only said, "'If your mother goes to sleep, be sure you come directly.' Margaret went into her mother's room. Mrs. Hale lifted herself up from a doze. "'When did you write to Frederick, Margaret? Yesterday? Or the day before?' "'Yesterday, Mamma." "'Yesterday. And the letter went?' "'Yes, I took it myself.' "'Oh, Margaret, I'm so afraid of his coming. If he should be recognized, if he should be taken, if he should be executed, after all these years that he has kept away and lived in safety, I keep falling asleep and dreaming that he is caught and being tried.' "'Oh, Mamma, don't be afraid. There will be some risk, no doubt.' but we will lessen it as much as ever we can, and it is so little. Now, if we were at Hellstone, there would be twenty, a hundred times as much. There everybody would remember him, and if there was a stranger known to be in the house, they would be sure to guess it was Frederick, while here nobody knows or cares for us enough to notice what we do. Dixon will keep the door like a dragon, won't you, Dixon, while he is here?' "'They'll be clever if they come in past me,' said Dixon, showing her teeth at the bare idea. "'And he need not go out, except in the dusk, poor fellow.' "'Poor fellow,' echoed Mrs. Hale. "'But I almost wish you had not written. Would it be too late to stop him, if you wrote again, Margaret?' "'I am afraid it would, Mamma," said Margaret, remembering the urgency with which she had entreated him to come directly, if he wished to see his mother alive.' "'I always dislike that doing things in such a hurry,' said Mrs. Hale. Margaret was silent. "'Come now, ma'am,' said Dixon, with a kind of cheerful authority. "'You know seeing Master Frederick is just the very thing of all others you're longing for. And I'm glad Miss Margaret wrote off straight, without shilly-shallying. I've had a great mind to do it myself. And we'll keep him snug, depend upon it. There's only Martha in the house that would not do a good deal to save him on a pinch, and I've been thinking that she might go and see her mother just at that very time. She's been saying once or twice she should like to go, for her mother has had a stroke since she came here, only she didn't like to ask. But I'll see about her being safe off, as soon as we know when he comes. God bless him. So take your tea, ma'am, in comfort, and trust to me." Mrs. Hale did trust in Dixon more than in Margaret. Dixon's words quieted her for the time. Margaret poured out the tea in silence, trying to think of something agreeable to say, but her thoughts made answer something like Daniel O'Rourke when the man in the moon asked him to get off his reaping-hook. The more you ax us, the more we won't stir. The more she tried to think of something, anything besides the danger to which Frederick would be exposed, the more closely her imagination clung to the unfortunate idea presented to her. Her mother prattled with Dixon, and seemed to have utterly forgotten the possibility of Frederick being tried and executed, utterly forgotten that at her wish, if by Margaret's deed, he was summoned into this danger. Her mother was one of those who throw out terrible possibilities, miserable probabilities, unfortunate chances of all kinds, as a rocket throws out sparks, but if the sparks light on some combustible matter, they smolder first, and burst out into a frightful flame at last. Margaret was glad when, her filial duties gently and carefully performed, 
she could go down into the study. She wondered how her father and Higgins had got on. In the first place, the decorous, kind-hearted, simple, old-fashioned gentleman had unconsciously called out, by his own refinement and courteousness of manner, all the latent courtesy in the other. Mr. Hale treated all his fellow-creatures alike. It never entered into his head to make any difference because of their rank. He placed a chair, for Nicholas stood up till he, at Mr. Hale's request, took a seat, and called him, invariably, Mr. Higgins, instead of the curt Nicholas, or Higgins, to which the drunken infidel weaver had been accustomed. But Nicholas was neither a habitual drunkard nor a thorough infidel. He drank to drown care, as he would have himself expressed it, and he was an infidel so far as he had never yet found any form of faith to which he could attach himself, heart and soul. Margaret was a little surprised, and very much pleased, when she found her father and Higgins in earnest conversation, each speaking with gentle politeness to the other, however their opinions might clash. Nicholas, clean, tidied, if only at the pump-trough, and quite spoken, was a new creature to her, who had only seen him in the rough independence of his own hearthstone. He had slicked his hair down with the fresh water, he had adjusted his neck-handkerchief, and borrowed an odd candle-end to polish his clogs with, and there he sat, enforcing some opinion on her father, with a strong Darkshire accent, it is true, but with a lowered voice and a good earnest composure on his face. Her father, too, was interested in what his companion was saying. He looked round as she came in, smiled, and quietly gave her his chair, and then sat down afresh as quickly as possible, with a little bow of apology to his guest for the interruption. Higgins nodded to her as a sign of greeting, and she softly adjusted her working materials on the table, and prepared to listen. "'As I was a-sayin', sir, I reckon you'd not have much belief in ye if ye lived here, if ye'd been bred here. I ax your pardon if I use wrong words. But what I mean by belief just now is a-thinkin' on sayings and maxims and promises made by folk you never saw, about the things and the life you never saw, nor no one else. Now, you say all these are true things, and true sayings, and a true life. I just say, where's the proof? There's many and many a wiser one, and scores better learned than I am around me. Folk who've had time to think on these things, while my time has had to begin up to get in my bread. Well, I sees these people. Their lives is pretty much open to me. They're real folk. They don't believe I the Bible, not they. They may say they do, for form's sake. But, Lord, sir, do you think their first cry i the morning is, What shall I do to get hold on eternal life? Or, What shall I do to fill my purse this blessed day? Where shall I go? What bargain shall I strike? The purse and the gold and the notes is the real things, things as can be felt and touched. Them's realities. And eternal life is all a talk, very fit for— I ax your pardon, sir, you're a parson, not a work, I believe. Well, I'll never speak disrespectful of a man in the same fix as I'm in myself. But I'll just ax you another question, sir, and I don't want you to answer it, only to put it in your pipe and smoke it, afore you go for to set down us who only believe in what we see, as fools and noddies. If salvation, and life to come, and what not, was true, not in men's words, but in men's hearts' core. 
Don't you think they din us with it, as they do with political economy? They're mighty anxious to come round us with that piece of wisdom, but t'other would be a greater conversation if it were true. But the masters have nothing to do with your religion. All that they are connected with you in is trade, so they think, and all that it concerns them, therefore, to rectify your opinions in, is the science of trade. I'm glad, sir, said Higgins, with a curious wink of his eye, that you put in, so they think. Had he thought you a hypocrite, I'm afeard, if you hadn't, for all you're a parson, or rather, because you're a parson. You see, if you'd spoken a religion as a thing that, if it was true, it didn't concern all men to press on all men's attention, above everything else in this vassal earth, I should have thought you a knave for to be a parson, and I'd rather think you a fool than a knave. No offence, I hope, sir. None at all. You consider me mistaken, and I consider you far more fatally mistaken. I don't expect to convince you in a day, not in one conversation. But let us know each other, and speak freely to each other about these things, and the truth will prevail. I should not believe in God if I did not believe that. Mr. Higgins, I trust, whatever else you have given up, you believe. Mr. Hale's voice dropped low in reverence. You believe in him. Nicholas Higgins suddenly stood straight, stiff up. Margaret started to her feet, for she thought, by the working of his face, he was going into convulsions. Mr. Hale looked at her dismayed. At last Higgins found words. "'Man, I could fell you to the ground for tempting me. What in business ha' yo to try me with your doubts? Think o' her lying there, after the life who's led, and think then how you'd deny me the one sole comfort left, that there is a God, and that he set her her life. I do not believe she'll ever live again,' said he, sitting down and drearily going on, as if to the unsympathizing fire. I do not believe in any other life than this, in which she dreed such trouble, and had such never-ending care, and I cannot bear to think it were all a set of chances that might have been altered with a breath o' wind. There's many a times when I've thought I didn't believe in God, but I've never put it fair out before me in words, as many men do. I may ha' laughed at those who did, to brave it out like, but I have looked round at after, to see if he heard me, if so there was a he. But to-day, when I am left desolate, I wouldn't listen to yo with your questions and your doubts. There's but one thing steady and quiet, I all this reeling world, and reason or no reason, I'll cling to that. It's a very well for happy folk. Margaret touched his arm very softly. She had not spoken before, nor had he heard her rise. Nicholas, we do not want to reason. You misunderstand, my father. We do not reason. We believe, and so do you. It is the one sole comfort in such times. He turned round and caught her hand. Aye, it is. It is. Brushing away the tears with the back of his hand. But you'll know. She's lying dead at home, and I'm weely dazed with sorrow and at times I hardly know what I'm saying. It's as if speeches folks ha' made, clever and smart things as I have thought at the time, 
Come up now, my heart's weally brosen. The strike's failed as well. Don't you know that, miss? I were coming wome to ask her, like a beggar as I am, for a bit of comfort I that trouble, and I were knocked down by one who telled me she were dead, just dead. That were all, but that were enough for me. Mr. Hale blew his nose, and got up to snuff the candles in order to conceal his emotion. "'He's not an infidel, Margaret. How could you say so?' muttered he, reproachfully. "'I've a good mind to read him the fourteenth chapter of Job.' "'Not yet, Papa, I think. Perhaps not at all. Let us ask him about the strike, and give him all the sympathy he needs, and hoped to have from poor Bessie.' So they questioned and listened. The workmen's calculations were based, like too many of the masters, on false premises. They reckoned on their fellow men as if they possessed the incalculable powers of machines, no more, no less. No allowance for human passions getting the better of reason, as in the case of Boucher and the rioters, and believing that the representations of their injuries would have the same effect on strangers far away as the injuries, fancied or real, had upon themselves. They were consequently surprised and indignant at the poor Irish, who had allowed themselves to be imported and brought over to take their places. This indignation was tempered, in some degree, by contempt for them Irishers, and by pleasure at the idea of the bungling way in which they would set to work, and perplex their new masters with their ignorance and stupidity, strange exaggerated stories of which were already spreading through the town. But the most cruel cut of all was that of the Milton workmen, who had defied and disobeyed the commands of the Union to keep the peace, whatever came, who had originated discord in the camp, and spread the panic of the law being arrayed against them. "'And so the strike is at an end,' said Margaret. "'Aye, miss, it's save as save can. The factory doors will need open wide to-morrow to let in all who will be axing for work, if it's only just to show they'd not to do we a measure, which if we'd been made of the right stuff, would have brought wages up to a point they not been at this ten year. "'You'll get work, shan't you?' asked Margaret. "'You're a famous workman, are not you?' "'Hamper'll let me work at his mill when he cuts off his right hand. Not before and not after,' said Nicholas, quietly. Margaret was silenced and sad. "'About the wages,' said Mr. Hale. "'You'll not be offended.' but I think you make some sad mistakes. I should like to read you some remarks in a book I have. He got up and went to his bookshelves. You'll needn't trouble yourself, sir, said Nicholas. Their book stuff goes in at one ear and out at t'other. I can make naught on it. Afore Hamper and me had this split, the overlooker telled him I were stern up the men to ask for higher wages, and Hamper met me one day in the yard. He'd a thin book in his hand, and he says, Higgins, I'm told you're one of those damned fools that think you can get higher wages for asking for em. Aye, and keep em up, too, when you forced em up. Now, I'll give you a chance to try if you've any sense in you. Here's a book written by a friend of mine, and if you'll read it, you'll see how wages find their own level without either masters or men having aught to do with them, except the men cut their own throats with striking, like the confounded noodles they are. Well, now, sir, I put it to you, being a parson, and having been in the preaching line, and having had to try to bring folk o'er to what you thought was a right way o' thinking, 
Did yo begin by calling em fools and such like? Or didn't ye rather give em some kind word at first, to make em ready for to listen and be convinced, if they could? And in your preaching, did you stop every now and then, and say, half to them and half to yourself, but you're such a pack of fools that I've a strong notion it's no use my trying to put sense into you? I were not the best state, I'll own, for taking in what Hamper's friend had to say. I were so vexed at the way it were put to me. But I thought, come, I'll see what those chaps has got to say, and try if it's them or me as is the noodle. So I took the book and tugged at it, but, Lord bless ye, it went on about capital and labour, and labour and capital, till it fair sent me off to sleep. I ne'er could rightly fix in my mind which was which, and it spoke on em as if they were virtues or vices, and what I wanted for to know were the rights of men, whether they were rich or poor, so be they only were men. But for all that, said Mr. Hale, and granting to the full the offensiveness, the folly, the unchristianness of Mr. Hamper's way of speaking to you in recommending his friend's book, yet if it told you what he said it did, that wages find their own level, and that the most successful strike can only force them up for a moment, to sink in far greater proportion afterwards, in consequence of that very strike, the book would have told you the truth. "'Well, sir,' said Higgins, rather doggedly, "'it might, or it might not. There's two opinions go to settle in that point. But suppose it was truth double-strong. It were no truth to me if I couldna take it in. I dare say there's truth in yon Latin book on your shelves, but it's gibberish and not truth to me, unless I know the meaning of the words. If yo, sir, or any other knowledgeable, patient man came to me, and says he'll larn me what the words mean, and not blow me up if I'm a bit stupid, or forget how one thing hangs on another, why, in time I may get to see the truth of it, or I may not. I'll not be bound to say I shall end up thinking the same way as any man. And I'm not one who think truth can be shaped out of words. All neat and clean, as the men at the foundry cut out sheet iron. Same bones won't go down, we every one. It'll stick here, e this man's throat, and there, in t'others. Let alone that, when down, it may be too strong for this one, too weak for that. Folk who sets up to doctor the world with their truth, mun suit different for different minds, and be a bit tender in the way o' givin' it, too, or the poor sick fools may spit it out i' their faces. Now Hamper first gives me a box on my ear, then he throws his big balloose at me, and says he reckons it'll do me good, I'm such a fool, but there it is. I wish some of the kindest and wisest of the masters would meet some of you men, and have a good talk on these things. It would, surely, be the best way of getting over your difficulties, which, I do believe, arise from your ignorance, excuse me, Mr. Higgins, on subjects which it is for the mutual interest of both masters and men, should be well understood by both. I wonder, half to his daughter, if Mr. Thornton might not be induced to do such a thing. Remember, Papa, said she, in a very low voice, what he said one day, about governments, you know. She was unwilling to make any clearer allusion to the conversation they had had on the mode of governing workpeople, 
by giving men intelligence enough to rule themselves, or by a wise despotism on the part of the master, for she saw that Higgins had caught Mr. Thornton's name, if not the whole part of the speech. Indeed, he began to speak of him. Thornton! He's the chap as wrote off at once for those Irishers, and led to the riots that ruined the strike. Even Hamper, we all his bullying, would have waited a while. But it's a word and a blow with Thornton. And now, when the Union would have thanked him for following up the chase after Boucher, and then chaps as went right against our commands, it's Thornton who steps forward and coolly says, as the strike's at an end, he, as party injured, doesn't want to press the charge against the rioters. I thought he'd had more pluck. I thought he'd have carried his point, and had his revenge in an open way. But says he, one in court told me his very words, they are well known, they will find the natural punishment of their conduct, in the difficulty they will meet, we get an employment. That will be severe enough. I only wish they'd cotched Boucher, and had him up before Hamper, I see the old tiger settin' on him. Would he ha' let him off? Not he. Mr. Thornton was right, said Margaret. You are angry against Boucher, Nicholas, or else you would be the first to see that where the natural punishment would be severe enough for the offence, any farther punishment would be something like revenge. My daughter is no great friend of Mr. Thornton's, said Mr. Hale, smiling at Margaret, while she— as red as any carnation, began to work with double diligence. But I believe what she says is the truth. I like him for it. Well, sir, this strike has been a weary piece of business to me, and you'll not wonder if I'm a bit put out, we seein' it fail, for just a few men who wouldn't a suffer in silence, and howed out, brave and firm. You forget, said Margaret, I don't know much of Boucher, but the only time I saw him it was not his own sufferings he spoke of, but those of his sick wife, and his little children. True, but he were not made of iron himself. He'd ha' cried out for his own sorrows next. He were not one to bear. How came he into the Union? asked Margaret, innocently. You don't seem to have much respect for him, nor gained much good from having him in. Higgins' brow clouded. He was silent for a minute or two. Then he said, shortly enough, "'It's not for me to speak of the Union. What they does, they does. Them that is of a trade mun hang together, and if they're not willing to take their chance, along with the rest, the Union has ways and means.' Mr. Hale saw that Higgins was vexed at the turn the conversation had taken, and was silent. Not so, Margaret, though she saw Higgins's feeling as clearly as he did, by instinct she felt that if he could but be brought to express himself in plain words, something clear would be gained on which to argue for the right and the just. And what are the Union's ways and means? He looked up at her, as if on the point of dogged resistance to her wish for information, but her calm face, fixed on his, patient and trustful, compelled him to answer. Well, if a man doesn't belong to the Union— them as works next looms has orders not to speak to him. If he's sorry or ill, it's a the same. He's out of bounds. He's none o' us. He comes among us. He works among us. But he's none o' us. In some places them's fine who speaks to him. 
yo try that miss try livin a year or two among them as looks away if yo look at em try workin within two yards o crowds o men who you know have a grinding grudge at you in their hearts to whom if you say you're glad not an eye brightens nor a lip moves to whom if your heart's heavy you can never say not because they'll ne'er take notice on your sighs or sad looks and a man's no man who'll groan out loud bout folk askin him what's the matter just yo try that miss ten hours for three hundred days and you'll know a bit o what the union is why said margaret what tyranny this is nay higgins i don't care one straw for your anger i know you can't be angry with me if you would and i must tell you the truth that i never read in all the history i have read of a more slow lingering torture than this and you belong to the union and you talk of the tyranny of the masters nay said higgins yo may say what you like the dead stand between yo and every angry word o mine do you think i forget who's lying there and how who loved you and it's the masters as made us sin if the union is a sin not this generation maybe but their fathers their fathers ground our fathers to the very dust ground us to powder parson i reckon i've heerd my mother read out a text the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge it's so we them in those days a sore oppression the unions began it were a necessity it's a necessity now according to me it's a withstanding of injustice past present or to come it may be like war along we it come crimes but i think it were a greater crime to let it alone our only chance is binding men together in one common interest and if some are cowards and some are fools they mun come along and join the great march whose only strength is in numbers oh said mr hale sighing your union in itself would be beautiful glorious it would be christianity itself if it were but for an end which affected the good of all instead of that of merely one class as opposed to another i reckon it's time for me to be going sir said higgins as the clock struck ten home said margaret very softly he understood her and took her offered hand home miss you may trust me though i am one of the union i do trust you most thoroughly nicholas stay said mr hale hurrying to the bookshelves mr higgins i'm sure you'll join us in family prayer higgins looked at margaret doubtfully her grave sweet eyes met his there was no compulsion only deep interest in them he did not speak but he kept his place margaret the churchwoman her father the dissenter higgins the infidel knelt down together it did them no harm end of chapter 28Chapter Twenty Nine of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Twenty Nine, A Ray of Sunshine. Some wishes crossed my mind and dimly cheered it. 
and one or two poor melancholy pleasures, each in the pale unwarming light of hope, slivering its flimsy wing, flew silent by, moss in the moonbeam. Coleridge The next morning brought Margaret a letter from Edith. It was affectionate and inconsequent like the writer, but the affection was charming to Margaret's own affectionate nature, and she had grown up with the inconsequence, so she did not perceive it. It was as follows. Oh, Margaret, it is worth a journey from England to see my boy. He is a superb little fellow, especially in his caps, and more especially in the one you sent him, you good, dainty-fingered, persevering little lady. Having made all the mothers here envious, I want to show him to somebody new, and hear a fresh set of admiring expressions. Perhaps that's all the reason. Perhaps it is not. Nay, possibly, there is just a little cousinly love mixed with it. But I do want you so much to come here, Margaret. I'm sure it would be the best thing for Aunt Hale's health, and everybody here is young and well, and our skies are always blue, and the sun always shines, and the band plays deliciously from morning till night, and— to come back to the burden of my ditty, my baby always smiles. I am constantly wanting you to draw him for me, Margaret. It does not signify what he is doing. That very thing is prettiest, gracefulest, best. I think I love him a great deal better than my husband, who is getting stout and grumpy, what he calls busy. No, he is not. He has just come in with news of such a charming picnic given by the officers of the hazard, at anchor in the bay below. Because he has brought in such a pleasant piece of news, I retract all I said just now. Did not somebody burn his hand for having said or done something he was sorry for? Well, I can't burn mine, because it would hurt me, and the scar would be ugly, but I'll retract all that I said as fast as I can. Cosmo is quite as great a darling as baby, and not a bit stout and as ungrumpy as ever husband was. Only, sometimes he is very, very busy. I may say that without love. Wifely duty. Where was I? I had something very particular to say, I know, once. Oh, it is this. Dearest Margaret, you must come and see me. It would do Aunt Hale good, as I said before. Get the doctor to order it for her. Tell him that it's the smoke of Milton that does her harm. I have no doubt about that, really. Three months, you must not come for less, of this delicious climate, all sunshine, and grapes as common as blackberries, would quite cure her. I don't ask my uncle. Here the letter became more constrained, and better written. Mr. Hale was in the corner, like a naughty child, for having given up his living. Because, I dare say, he disapproves of war, and soldiers, and bands of music, at least— I know that many dissenters are members of the Peace Society, and I am afraid he would not like to come. But, if he would, pray, say that Cosmo and I will do our best to make him happy, and I'll hide up Cosmo's red coat and sword, and make the band play all sorts of grave, solemn things. Or, if they do play pomp and vanities, it shall be in double slow time. Dear Margaret, if he would like to accompany you and Aunt Hale, we will try and make it pleasant— though I am rather afraid of any one who has done something for conscience' sake. You never did, I hope. Tell Aunt Hale not to bring him any warm clothes, though I am afraid it will be late in the year before you can come. 
but you have no idea of the heat here i tried to wear my great beauty indian shawl at a picnic i kept myself up with proverbs as long as i could pride must abide and such wholesome pieces of pith but it was of no use i was like mamma's little dog tiny with an elephant's trappings on smothered hidden killed with my finery so i made it a capital carpet for us all to sit down upon here's this boy of mine margaret if you don't pack up your things as soon as you get this letter and come straight off to see him i shall think you're descended from king herod margaret did long for a day of edith's life her freedom from care her cheerful home her sunny skies if a wish could have transported her she would have gone off just for one day she yearned for the strength which such a change would give even for a few hours to be in the midst of that bright life and to feel young again not yet twenty and she had had to bear up against such hard pressure that she felt quite old that was her first feeling after reading edith's letter then she read it again and forgetting herself was amused at its likeness to edith's self and was laughing merrily over it when mrs hale came into the drawing-room leaning on dixon's arm margaret flew to adjust the pillows her mother seemed more than usually feeble what were you laughing at margaret asked she as soon as she had recovered from the exertion of settling herself on the sofa a letter i have had this morning from edith shall i read it to you mamma she read it aloud and for a time it seemed to interest her mother who kept wondering what name edith had given to her boy and suggesting all probable names and all possible reasons why each and all of these names should be given into the very midst of these wonders mr thornton came bringing another offering of fruit for mrs hale he could not say rather he would not deny himself the chance of the pleasure of seeing margaret he had no end in this but the present gratification it was the sturdy wilfulness of a man usually most reasonable and self-controlled he entered the room taking in at a glance the fact of margaret's presence but after the first cold distant bow he never seemed to let his eyes fall on her again he only stayed to present his peaches to speak some gentle kindly words and then his cold offended eyes met margaret's with a grave farewell as he left the room she sat down silent and pale do you know margaret i really begin quite to like mr thornton no answer at first then margaret forced out an icy do you yes i think he is really getting quite polished in his manners margaret's voice was more in order now she replied he is very kind and attentive there's no doubt of that i wonder mrs thornton never calls she must know i am ill because of the water-bed i dare say she hears how you are from her son still i should like to see her you have so few friends here margaret margaret felt what was in her mother's thoughts a tender craving to bespeak the kindness of some woman towards the daughter that might be so soon left motherless but she could not speak do you think said mrs hale after a pause that you could go and ask mrs thornton to come and see me only once i don't want to be troublesome i will do anything if you wish it mamma but if but when frederick comes ah to be sure we must keep our doors shut we must let no one in 
I hardly know whether I dare wish him to come or not. Sometimes I think I would rather not. Sometimes I have such frightful dreams about him. Oh, Mamma, we'll take good care. I will put my arm in the bolt sooner than he should come to the slightest harm. Trust the care of him to me, Mamma. I will watch over him like a lioness over her young. When can we hear from him? Not for a week yet, certainly, perhaps more. We must send Martha away in good time. It would never do to have her here when he comes, and then send her off in a hurry. Dixon is sure to remind us of that. I was thinking that, if we wanted any help in the house while he is here, we could perhaps get Mary Higgins. She is very slack of work, and is a good girl, and would take pains to do her best, I am sure, and would sleep at home, and need never come upstairs so as to know who was in the house. As you please, as Dixon pleases. But, Margaret, don't get to use these horrid Milton words. Slack of work. It is a provincialism. What would your Aunt Shaw say, if she hears you use it on her return? Oh, Mamma, don't try and make a bugbear of Aunt Shaw, said Margaret, laughing. Edith picked up all sorts of military slang from Captain Lennox, and Aunt Shaw never took any notice of it. But yours is factory slang. And if I live in a factory town, I must speak factory language when I want it. Why, Mamma, I could astonish you with a great many words you have never heard in your life. I don't believe you know what a knobstick is. Not I, child. I only know it has some very vulgar sound, and I don't want to hear you using it. Very well, dearest Mamma, I won't. Only I shall have to use a whole explanatory sentence instead. I don't like this Milton, said Mrs. Hale. Edith is right enough in saying it's the smoke that has made me so ill. Margaret stood up as her mother said this. Her father had just entered the room, and she was most anxious that the faint impression she had seen on his mind that the Milton air had injured her mother's health should not be deepened. She did not receive any confirmation. She could not tell whether he had heard what Mrs. Hale had said or not, but she began to speak hurriedly of other things, unaware that Mr. Thornton was following him. Mama is accusing me of having picked up a great deal of vulgarity since we came to Milton. The vulgarity Margaret spoke of referred purely to the use of local words, and the expression arose out of the conversation they had just been holding. But Mr. Thornton's brow darkened and Margaret suddenly felt how her speech might be misunderstood by him. So, in the natural sweet desire to avoid giving unnecessary pain, she forced herself to go forwards with a little greeting, and continue what she was saying, addressing herself to him expressly. Now, Mr. Thornton, though knobstick has not a very pretty sound, is it not expressive? Could I do without it, in speaking of the thing it represents? If using local words is vulgar, I was very vulgar in the forest, was I not, Mamma? It was unusual with Margaret to obtrude her own subject of conversation on others, but in this case she was so anxious to prevent Mr. Thornton from feeling annoyance at the words he had accidentally overheard, that it was not until she had done speaking that she coloured all over with consciousness, more especially as Mr. Thornton seemed hardly to understand the exact gist or bearing of what she was saying, but passed her by with a cold reserve of ceremonious movement, to speak to Mrs. Hale. 
The sight of him reminded her of the wish to see his mother, and commend Margaret to her care. Margaret, sitting in burning silence, vexed and ashamed of her difficulty in keeping her right place, and her calm unconsciousness of heart, when Mr. Thornton was by, heard her mother's slow entreaty that Mrs. Thornton would come and see her, see her soon, to-morrow if it were possible. Mr. Thornton promised that she should, conversed a little more, and then took his leave, and Margaret's movements and voice seemed at once released from some invisible chains. He never looked at her, and yet the careful avoidance of his eyes betokened that in some way he knew exactly where, if they fell by chance, they would rest on her. If she spoke, he gave no sign of attention, and yet his next speech to any one else was modified by what she had said. Sometimes there was an express answer to what she had remarked, but given to another person as though unsuggested by her. It was not the bad manners of ignorance. It was the willful bad manners arising from deep offence. It was willful at the time, repented of afterwards. But no deep pain, no careful cunning, could have stood him in such good stead. Margaret thought about him more than she had ever done before, not with any tinge of what is called love, but with regret that she had wounded him so deeply, and with a gentle, patient striving to return to their former position of antagonistic friendship, for a friend's position was what she found that he had held in her regard, as well as in that of the rest of the family. There was a pretty humility in her behavior to him, as if mutely apologizing for the overstrong words which were the reaction from the deeds of the day of the riot. But he resented those words bitterly. They rung in his ears, and he was proud of the sense of justice which made him go on in every kindness he could offer to her parents. He exulted in the power he showed in compelling himself to face her whenever he could think of any action which might give her father or mother pleasure. He thought that he disliked seeing one who had mortified him so keenly, but he was mistaken. It was a stinging pleasure to be in the room with her and feel her presence. But he was no great analyzer of his own motives, and was mistaken, as I have said. End of chapter 29「thirty of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter thirty. Home at last. The saddest birds a season find to sing. Southwell. Never to fold the robe o'er secret pain, never, weighed down by memory's clouds again, to bow thy head thou art gone home. Mrs. Hemans Mrs. Thornton came to see Mrs. Hale the next morning. She was much worse. One of those sudden changes, those great visible strides towards death, had been taken in the night, and her own family were startled by the grey, sunken look her features had assumed in that one twelve hours of suffering. Mrs. Thornton, who had not seen her for weeks, was softened all at once. She had come because her son asked it from her as a personal favor, but with all the proud bitter feelings of her nature in arms against that family of which Margaret formed one. She doubted the reality of Mrs. Hale's illness. She doubted any want beyond a momentary fancy on that lady's part, which should take her out of her previously settled course of employment for the day. 
she told her son that she wished they had never come near the place, that he had never got acquainted with them, that there had been no such useless languages as Latin and Greek ever invented. He bore all this pretty silently, but when she had ended her invective against the dead languages, he quietly returned to the short, curt, decided expression of his wish that she should go and see Mrs. Hale at the appointed time, as most likely to be convenient to the invalid. Mrs. Thornton submitted with as bad a grace as she could to all her son's desire, all the time liking him the better for having it, and exaggerating in her own mind the same notion that he had of extraordinary goodness on his part in so perseveringly keeping up with the Hales. His goodness was verging on weakness, as all the softer virtues did in her mind, and her own contempt for Mr. and Mrs. Hale, and positive dislike to Margaret, were the ideas which occupied Mrs. Thornton, till she was struck into nothingness before the dark shadow of the wings of the angel of death. There lay Mrs. Hale, a mother like herself, a much younger woman than she was, on the bed from which there was no sign of hope that she might ever rise again. No more variety of light and shade for her in that darkened room. No power of action. Scarcely change of movement. Faint alternations of whispered sound and studious silence. And yet that monotonous life seemed almost too much. When Mrs. Thornton, strong and prosperous with life, came in, Mrs. Hale lay still, although from the look on her face she was evidently conscious of who it was, but she did not even open her eyes for a minute or two. The heavy moisture of tears stood on the eyelashes before she looked up, then with her hand groping feebly over the bedclothes, for the touch of Mrs. Thornton's large, firm fingers, she said, scarcely above her breath. Mrs. Thornton had to stoop from her erectness to listen. "'Margaret, you have a daughter. My sister is in Italy.' My child will be without a mother, in a strange place. If I die, will you? And her filmy, wandering eyes fixed themselves with an intensity of wistfulness on Mrs. Thornton's face. For a minute there was no change in its rigidness. It was stern and unmoved. Nay, but that the eyes of the sick woman were growing dim with slow-gathering tears she might have seen a dark cloud cross the cold features. And it was no thought of her son, or of her living daughter Fanny, that stirred her heart at last, but a sudden remembrance, suggested by something in the arrangement of the room, of a little daughter, died in infancy, long years ago, that, like a sudden sunbeam, melted the icy crust, behind which there was a real, tender woman. "'You wish me to be a friend to Miss Hale,' said Mrs. Thornton, in her measured voice, that would not soften with her heart, but came out distinct and clear. Mrs. Hale, her eyes still fixed on Mrs. Thornton's face, pressed the hand that lay below hers on the coverlet. She could not speak. Mrs. Thornton sighed. I will be a true friend, if circumstances require it. Not a tender friend. That I cannot be. To her she was on the point of adding, but she relented at the sight of that poor, anxious face. It is not my nature to show affection even where I feel it, nor do I volunteer advice in general. Still, 
at your request, if it will be any comfort to you, I will promise you. Then came a pause. Mrs. Thornton was too conscientious to promise what she did not mean to perform, and to perform anything in the way of kindness on behalf of Margaret, more disliked at this moment than ever, was difficult, almost impossible. "'I promise,' said she, with grave severity, which, after all, inspired the dying woman with faith as in something more stable than life itself, flickering, flitting, wavering life. I promise that in any difficulty in which Miss Hale—' "'Call her Margaret,' gasped Mrs. Hale. "'In which she comes to me for help. I will help her with every power I have, as if she were my own daughter.' I also promise that if ever I see her doing what I think is wrong. But Margaret never does wrong. Not willfully wrong, pleaded Mrs. Hale. Mrs. Thornton went on as before, as if she had not heard. If I ever see her doing what I believe to be wrong, such wrong not touching me or mine, in which case I might be supposed to have an interested motive, I will tell her of it, faithfully and plainly, as I should wish my own daughter to be told. There was a long pause. Mrs. Hale felt that this promise did not include all, and yet it was much. It had reservations in it which she did not understand. But then she was weak, dizzy, and tired. Mrs. Thornton was reviewing all the probable cases in which she had pledged herself to act. She had a fierce pleasure in the idea of telling Margaret unwelcome truths, in the shape of performance of duty. Mrs. Hale began to speak. "'I thank you. I pray God to bless you. I shall never see you again in this world. But my last words are, I thank you for your promise of kindness to my child.' "'Not kindness,' testified Mrs. Thornton, ungraciously truthful at the last. But having eased her conscience by saying these words, she was not sorry that they were not heard. She pressed Mrs. Hale's soft, languid hand, and rose up and went her way out of the house without seeing a creature. During the time that Mrs. Thornton was having this interview with Mrs. Hale, Margaret and Dixon were laying their heads together, and consulting how they should keep Frederick's coming a profound secret to all out of the house. A letter from him might now be expected any day, and he would assuredly follow quickly on its heels. Martha must be sent away on her holiday. Dixon must keep a stern guard on the front door, only admitting the few visitors that ever came to the house into Mr. Hale's room downstairs, Mrs. Hale's extreme illness giving her a good excuse for this. If Mary Higgins was required as a help to Dixon in the kitchen, she was to hear and see as little of Frederick as possible, and he was, if necessary, to be spoken of to her under the name of Mr. Dickinson but her sluggish and incurious nature was the greatest safeguard of all. They resolved that Martha should leave them that very afternoon for the visit to her mother. Margaret wished that she had been sent away on the previous day, as she fancied it might be thought strange to give a servant a holiday when her mistress's state required so much attendance. Poor Margaret! All that afternoon she had to act the part of a Roman daughter, and give strength out of her own scanty stock to her father. Mr. Hale would hope, would not despair, between the attacks of his wife's malady. He buoyed himself up in every respite from her pain, and believed that it was the beginning of ultimate recovery, 
and so, when the paroxysms came on, each more severe than the last, they were fresh agonies, and greater disappointments to him. This afternoon he sat in the drawing-room, unable to bear the solitude of the study, or to employ himself in any way. He buried his head in his arms, which lay folded on the table. Margaret's heart ached to see him, yet, as he did not speak, she did not like to volunteer any attempt at comfort. Martha was gone. Dixon sat with Mrs. Hale while she slept. The house was very still and quiet, and darkness came on, without any movement to procure candles. Margaret sat at the window, looking out at the lamps and the street, but seeing nothing, only alive to her father's heavy sighs. She did not like to go down for lights, lest the tacit restraint of her presence being withdrawn, he might give way to more violent emotion, without her being at hand to comfort him. Yet she was just thinking that she ought to go, and see after the well-doing of the kitchen fire, which there was nobody but herself to attend to, when she heard the muffled door-ring with so violent a pull that the wires jingled all through the house, though the positive sound was not great. She started up, passed her father, who had never moved at the veiled, dull sound, returned, and kissed him tenderly. And still he never moved, nor took any notice of her fond embrace. Then she went down softly, through the dark, to the door. Dixon would have put the chain on before she opened it, but Margaret had no thought of fear in her preoccupied mind. A man's tall figure stood between her and the luminous street. He was looking away, but at the sound of the latch he turned quickly round. "'Is this Mr. Hales?' said he, in a clear, full, delicate voice. Margaret trembled all over. At first she did not answer. In a moment she sighed out, "'Frederick!' and stretched out both her hands to catch his and draw him in. "'Oh, Margaret,' said he, holding her off by her shoulders, after they had kissed each other, as if even in that darkness he could see her face, and read in its expression a quicker answer to his question than words could give. "'My mother, is she alive?' "'Yes, she is alive, dear, dear brother. She, as ill as she can be, she is, but alive.' She is alive. Thank God, said he. Papa is utterly prostrate with this great grief. You expect me, don't you? No, we have had no letter. Then I have come before it. But my mother knows I am coming. Oh, we all knew you would come. But wait a little. Step in here. Give me your hand. What is this? Oh, your carpet-bag. Dixon has shut the shutters, but this is Papa's study, and I can give you a chair to rest yourself for a few minutes, while I go and tell him. She groped her way to the taper and the lucifer matches. She suddenly felt shy, when the little feeble light made them visible. All she could see was, that her brother's face was unusually dark in complexion, and she caught the stealthy look of a pair of remarkably long-cut blue eyes that suddenly twinkled up with the droll consciousness of their mutual purpose of inspecting each other. But though the brother and sister had an instant of sympathy in their reciprocal glances, they did not exchange a word. Only, Margaret felt sure that she should like her brother as a companion as much as she already loved him as a near relation. Her heart was wonderfully lighter as she went upstairs. The sorrow was no less in reality but it became less oppressive from having someone in precisely the same relation to it 
as that in which she stood. Not her father's desponding attitude had power to damp her now. He lay across the table, helpless as ever, but she had the spell by which to rouse him. She used it perhaps too violently in her own great grief. "'Papa,' said she, throwing her arms fondly round his neck, pulling his weary head up, in fact, with her gentle violence, till it rested in her arms, and she could look into his eyes, and let them gain strength and assurance from hers. "'Papa, guess who is here?' He looked at her. She saw the idea of the truth glimmer into their filmy sadness, and to be dismissed thence as a wild imagination. He threw himself forward, and hid his face once more in his stretched-out arms, resting upon the table as heretofore. She heard him whisper. She bent tenderly down to listen. "'I don't know. Don't tell me it's Frederick. Not Frederick. I cannot bear it. I am too weak, and his mother is dying.' He began to cry and wail like a child. It was so different to all which Margaret had hoped and expected, that she turned sick with disappointment, and was silent for an instant. Then she spoke again, very differently, not so exultingly, far more tenderly and carefully. "'Papa, it is Frederick. Think of Mamma, how glad she will be. And, oh, for her sake, how glad we ought to be.' for his sake, too, our poor, poor boy. Her father did not change his attitude, but he seemed to be trying to understand the fact. "'Where is he?' asked he at last, his face still hidden in his prostrate arms. "'In your study, quite alone. I lighted the taper and ran up to tell you. He is quite alone, and will be wondering why.' "'I will go to him,' broke in her father, and he lifted himself up and leant on her arm as that of a guide. Margaret led him to the study door, but her spirits were so agitated that she felt she could not bear to see the meeting. She turned away and ran upstairs, and cried most heartily. It was the first time she had dared to allow herself this relief for days. The strain had been terrible, as she now felt, but Frederick was come. He, the one precious brother, was there, safe, amongst them again. She could hardly believe it. She stopped her crying, and opened her bedroom door. She heard no sound of voices, and almost feared she might have dreamt. She went downstairs and listened at the study door. She heard the buzz of voices, and that was enough. She went into the kitchen, and stirred up the fire, and lighted the house, and prepared for the wanderer's refreshment. How fortunate it was that her mother slept! She knew that she did, from the candle-lighter thrust through the keyhole of her bedroom door. The traveller could be refreshed and bright, and the first excitement of the meeting with his father all be over before her mother became aware of anything unusual. When all was ready, Margaret opened the study door, and went in like a serving-maiden, with a heavy tray held in her extended arms. She was proud of serving Frederick. But he, when he saw her, sprang up in a minute, and relieved her of her burden. It was a type, a sign, of all the coming relief which his presence would bring. The brother and sister arranged the table together, saying little, but their hands touching, and their eyes speaking the natural language of expression, so intelligible to those of the same blood. The fire had gone out, and Margaret applied herself to light it, 
for the evenings had begun to be chilly, and yet it was desirable to make all noises as distant as possible from Mrs. Hale's room. Dixon says it is a gift to light a fire, not an art to be acquired. Poeta nascatur, non fit, murmured Mr. Hale, and Margaret was glad to hear a quotation once more, however languidly given. Dear old Dixon, how we shall kiss each other, said Frederick. She used to kiss me, and then look in my face to be sure I was the right person, and then set to again. But, Margaret, what a bungler you are! I never saw such a little, awkward, good-for-nothing pair of hands. Run away, and wash them, ready to cut bread and butter for me, and leave the fire. I'll manage it. Lighting fires is one of my natural accomplishments. So Margaret went away, and returned, and passed in and out of the room, in a glad restlessness that could not be satisfied with sitting still. The more wants Frederick had, the better she was pleased, and he understood all this by instinct. It was a joy snatched in the house of mourning, and the zest of it was all the more pungent, because they knew in the depths of their hearts what irremediable sorrow awaited them. In the middle they heard Dixon's foot on the stairs. Mr. Hale started from his languid posture, in his great armchair, from which he had been watching his children in a dreamy way, as if they were acting in some drama of happiness, which was pretty to look at, but which was distinct from reality, and in which he had no part. He stood up and faced the door, showing such a strange, sudden anxiety to conceal Frederick from the sight of any person entering, even though it were the faithful Dixon, that a shiver came over Margaret's heart. It reminded her of the new fear in their lives. She caught at Frederick's arm and clutched it tight, while a stern thought compressed her brows and caused her to set her teeth. And yet they knew it was only Dixon's measured tread. They heard her walk the length of the passage into the kitchen. Margaret rose up. I will go to her and tell her, and I shall hear how Mamma is. Mrs. Hale was awake. She rambled at first, but after they had given her some tea she was refreshed, though not disposed to talk. It was better that the night should pass over before she was told of her son's arrival. Dr. Donaldson's appointed visit would bring nervous excitement enough for the evening, and he might tell them how to prepare her for seeing Frederick. He was there, in the house, could be summoned at any moment. Margaret could not sit still. It was a relief to her to aid Dixon in all her preparations for Master Frederick. It seemed as though she could never be tired again. Each glimpse into the room where he sat by his father, conversing with him about she knew not what, nor cared to know, was increase of strength to her. Her own time for talking and hearing would come at last, and she was too certain of this to feel in a hurry to grasp it now. She took in his appearance and liked it. He had delicate features— redeemed from effeminacy by the swarthiness of his complexion and his quick intensity of expression. His eyes were generally merry-looking, but at times they and his mouth so suddenly changed and gave her such an idea of latent passion that it almost made her afraid. But this look was only for an instant, and had in it no doggedness. It was rather the instantaneous ferocity of expression that comes over the countenances of all natives of wild southern countries a ferocity which enhances the charm of the childlike softness into which such a look may melt away. Margaret might fear the violence of the impulsive nature thus occasionally betrayed, but there was nothing in it to make her distrust, or recoil in the least, from the new-found brother. On the contrary, 
their intercourse was peculiarly charming to her from the very first she knew then how much responsibility she had had to bear from the exquisite sensation of relief which she felt in frederick's presence he understood his father and mother their characters and their weaknesses and went along with a careless freedom which was yet most delicately careful not to hurt or wound any of their feelings he seemed to know instinctively when a little of the natural brilliancy of his manner and conversation would not jar on the deep depression of his father or might relieve his mother's pain whenever it would have been out of tune and out of time his patient devotion and watchfulness came into play and made him an admirable nurse then margaret was almost touched to tears by the allusions which he often made to their childish days in the new forest he had never forgotten her or hellstone either all the time he had been roaming among distant countries and foreign people she might talk to him of the old spot and never fear tiring him she had been afraid of him before he came even while she longed for his coming seven or eight years had she felt produced such great changes in herself that forgetting how much of the original margaret was left she had reasoned that if her tastes and feelings had so materially altered even in her stay-at-home life his wild career with which she was but imperfectly acquainted must have almost substituted another frederick for the tall stripling in his middy's uniform whom she remembered looking up to with such admiring awe but in their absence they had grown nearer to each other in age as well as in many other things and so it was that the wait this sorrowful time was lightened to margaret other light than that of frederick's presence she had none for a few hours the mother rallied on seeing her son she sat with his hand in hers she would not part with it even while she slept and margaret had to feed him like a baby rather than that he should disturb her mother by removing a finger mrs hale wakened while they were thus engaged she slowly moved her head round on the pillow and smiled at her children as she understood what they were doing and why it was done i am very selfish said she but it will not be for long frederick bent down and kissed the feeble hand that imprisoned his this state of tranquillity could not endure for many days nor perhaps for many hours so dr donaldson assured margaret after the kind doctor had gone away she stole down to frederick who during the visit had been adjured to remain quietly concealed in the back parlor usually dixon's bedroom but now given up to him margaret told him what dr donaldson said i don't believe it he exclaimed she is very ill she may be dangerously ill and in immediate danger too but i can't imagine that she could be as she is if she were on the point of death margaret she should have some other advice some london doctor have you never thought of that yes said margaret more than once but i don't believe it would do any good and you know we have not the money to bring any great london surgeon down and i'm sure dr donaldson is only second in skill to the very best if indeed he is to them frederick began to walk up and down the room impatiently i have credit in cadiz he said but none here owing to this wretched change of name why did my father leave hellstone that was the blunder it was no blunder said margaret gloomily and above all possible chances avoid letting papa hear anything like what you have just been saying 
I can see that he is tormenting himself already with the idea that Mamma would never have been ill if we had stayed at Helstone, and you don't know Papa's agonizing power of self-reproach. Frederick walked away as if he were on the quarter-deck. At last he stopped right opposite to Margaret, and looked at her drooping and desponding attitude for an instant. "'My little Margaret,' said he, caressing her, "'let us hope as long as we can. Poor little woman!' what is this face all wet with tears i will hope i will in spite of a thousand doctors bear up margaret and be brave enough to hope margaret choked in trying to speak and when she did it was very low i must be meek enough to trust oh frederick mamma was getting to love me so and i was getting to understand her and now comes death to snap us asunder. Come, come, come. Let us go upstairs and do something, rather than waste time that may be so precious. Thinking has, many a time, made me sad, darling, but doing never did in all my life. My theory is a sort of parody on the maxim, Get money, my son, honestly if you can, but get money. My precept is, do something, my sister. Do good if you can, but at any rate, do something. Not excluding mischief, said Margaret, smiling faintly through her tears. By no means. What I do exclude is the remorse afterwards. Blot your misdeeds out, if you are particularly conscientious, by a good deed as soon as you can, just as we did a correct sum at school on the slate where an incorrect one was only half rubbed out. It was better than wetting our sponge with our tears, both less loss of time where tears had to be waited for, and a better effect at last. If Margaret thought Frederick's theory rather a rough one at first, she saw how he worked it out into continual production of kindness in fact. After a bad night with his mother, for he insisted on taking his turn as a sitter-up, he was busy next morning before breakfast, contriving a leg-rest for Dixon, who was beginning to feel the fatigues of watching. At breakfast-time he interested Mr. Hale with a vivid, graphic, rattling account of the wild life he had led in Mexico, South America, and elsewhere. Margaret would have given up the effort in despair to rouse Mr. Hale out of his dejection, and it would even have affected herself and rendered her incapable of talking at all. But Fred, true to his theory, did something perpetually, and talking was the only thing to be done, besides eating, at breakfast. Before the night of that day, Dr. Donaldson's opinion was proved to be too well-founded. Convulsions came on, and when they ceased, Mrs. Hale was unconscious. Her husband might lie by her shaking the bed with his sobs. Her son's strong arms might lift her tenderly up into a comfortable position. Her daughter's hands might bathe her face. But she knew them not. She would never recognize them again till they met in heaven. Before the morning came, all was over. Then Margaret rose from her trembling and despondency, and became as a strong angel of comfort to her father and brother. For Frederick had broken down now, and all his theories were of no use to him. He cried so violently when shut up alone in his little room at night that Margaret and Dixon came down in a fright to warn him to be quiet, for the house partitions were but thin, 
and the next-door neighbors might easily hear his youthful passionate sobs, so different from the slower trembling agony of after-life, when we become inured to grief, and dare not be rebellious against the inexorable doom, knowing who it is that decrees. Margaret sat with her father in the room with the dead. If he had cried, she would have been thankful. But he sat by the bed quite quietly. Only, from time to time, he uncovered the face and stroked it gently, making a kind of soft, inarticulate noise, like that of some mother animal caressing her young. He took no notice of Margaret's presence. Once or twice she came up to kiss him, and he submitted to it, giving her a little push away when she had done, as if her affection disturbed him from his absorption in the dead. He started when he heard Frederick's cries, and shook his head. "'Poor boy! Poor boy!' he said, and took no more notice. Margaret's heart ached within her. She could not think of her own loss in thinking of her father's case. The night was wearing away, and the day was at hand, when, without a word of preparation, Margaret's voice broke upon the stillness of the room, with a clearness of sound that startled even herself. "'Let not your heart be troubled,' it said, and she went steadily on through all that chapter of unspeakable consolation. End of chapter 30《Chapter Thirty One of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Thirty One. Should Old Acquaintance Be Forgot? Show not that manner, and these features all, the serpent's cunning, and the sinner's fall. Crab. The chill, shivery October morning came. Not the October morning of the country, with soft, silvery mists, clearing off before the sunbeams that bring out all the gorgeous beauty of colouring, but the October morning of Milton, whose silvery mists were heavy fogs, and where the sun could only show long dusky streets when he did break through and shine. Margaret went languidly about, assisting Dixon in her task of arranging the house. Her eyes were continually blinded by tears but she had no time to give way to regular crying. The father and brother depended upon her. While they were giving way to grief, she must be working, planning, considering. Even the necessary arrangements for the funeral seemed to devolve upon her. When the fire was bright and crackling, when everything was ready for breakfast, and the tea-kettle was singing away, Margaret gave a last look around the room before going to summon Mr. Hale and Frederick. She wanted everything to look as cheerful as possible, and yet, when it did so, the contrast between it and her own thoughts forced her into sudden weeping. She was kneeling by the sofa, hiding her face in the cushions that no one might hear her cry, when she was touched on the shoulder by Dixon. "'Come, Miss Hale. Come, my dear. You must not give way, or where shall we all be?' There's not another person in the house fit to give a direction of any kind, and there is so much to be done. There's who to manage the funeral, and who's to come to it, and where it's to be, and all to be settled, and Master Frederick's like one crazed with crying, and Master never was a good one for settling, and, poor gentleman, he goes about now as if he was lost. 
It's bad enough, my dear, I know. But death comes to us all, and you're well off never to have lost any friend till now. Perhaps so, but this seemed a loss by itself, not to bear comparison with any other event in the world. Margaret did not take any comfort from what Dixon said, but the unusual tenderness of the prim old servant's manner touched her to the heart, and, more from a desire to show her gratitude for this than for any other reason, she roused herself up and smiled in answer to Dixon's anxious look at her, and went to tell her father and brother that breakfast was ready. Mr. Hale came, as if in a dream, or rather, with the unconscious motion of a sleepwalker, whose eyes and mind perceive other things than what are present. Frederick came briskly in, with a forced cheerfulness, grasped her hand, looked into her eyes, and burst into tears. She had to try and think of little nothings to say all breakfast-time, in order to prevent the recurrence of her companion's thoughts too strongly to the last meal they had taken together, when there had been a continual strained listening for some sound or signal from the sick-room. After breakfast she resolved to speak to her father about the funeral. He shook his head, and assented to all she proposed, though many of her propositions absolutely contradicted one another. Margaret gained no real decision from him, and was leaving the room languidly to have a consultation with Dixon when Mr. Hale motioned her back to his side. "'Ask Mr. Bell,' he said, in a hollow voice. "'Mr. Bell,' said she, a little surprised. "'Mr. Bell, of Oxford?' "'Mr. Bell,' he repeated. "'Yes. He was my groomsman.' Margaret understood the association. "'I will write to-day,' said she. He sank again into listlessness. All morning she toiled on, longing for rest, but in a continual whirl of melancholy business. Towards evening, Dixon said to her, "'I've done it, miss. I was really afraid for Master, that he'd have a stroke with grief. He's been all this day with poor Mrs., and when I've listened at the door, I've heard him talking to her, and talking to her, as if she was alive. When I went in he would be quiet, but all in a maze, like. So I thought to myself, he ought to be roused, and if it gives him a shock at first, it will, maybe, be better afterwards.' So I've been and told him that I don't think it's safe for Master Frederick to be here, and I don't. It was only on Tuesday, when I was out, that I met a Southampton man, the first I've seen since I came to Milton. They don't make their way much up here, I think. Well, it was young Leonard's, old Leonard's the draper's son, as great a scamp as ever lived, who plagued his father almost to death, and then ran off to sea. I never could abide him. He was on the Orion at the same time as Master Frederick, I know, though I don't recollect if he was there at the mutiny. "'Did he know you?' said Margaret, eagerly. "'Why, that's the worst of it. I don't believe he would have known me, but for my being such a fool as to call out his name. He were a Southampton man, in a strange place, or else I should never have been so ready to call cousins with him, a nasty, good-for-nothing fellow. Says he, "'Miss Dixon,' Who would have thought of seeing you here? But perhaps I mistake, and you're Miss Dixon no longer. So I told him he might still address me as an unmarried lady, though, if I hadn't been so particular, I guess I'd good chances of matrimony. He was polite enough. He couldn't look at me and doubt me. 
but I were not to be caught with some chaff from such a fellow as him, and so I told him, and, by way of being even, I asked him after his father, who I knew had turned him out of doors, as if they were the best friends as ever was. So then, to spite me, for you see we were getting savage, for all we were so civil to each other, he began to inquire after Master Frederick, and said, what a scrape he'd got into, as if Master Frederick's scrapes would ever wash George Leonard's white, or make him look otherwise than nasty, dirty black. And how he'd be hung for mutiny, if ever he were caught, and how a hundred-pound reward had been offered for catching him, and what a disgrace he had been to his family, all to spite me, you see, my dear, because before now I've helped old Mr. Leonard's to give George a good rating, down in Southampton. So I said, there were other families to be thankful if they could think they were earning an honest living, as I knew, who had far more cause to blush for their sons, and to far away from home. To which he made answer, like the impudent chap he is, that he were in a confidential situation, and if I knew of any young man who had been so unfortunate as to lead vicious courses, and wanted to turn steady, he'd have no objection to lend him his patronage. He, indeed! Why, he'd corrupt a saint! I've not felt so bad myself for years as when I were standing talking to him the other day. I could have cried to think I couldn't spite him better, for he kept smiling in my face, as if he took all my compliments for earnest. And I couldn't see that he minded what I said in the least, while I was mad with all his speeches. But you did not tell him anything about us, about Frederick. Not I, said Dixon. He never had the grace to ask where I was staying, and I shouldn't have told him if he had asked, nor did I ask him what his precious situation was. He was waiting for a bus, and just then it drove up, and he hailed it, but, to plague me to the last, he turned back before he got in, and said, "'If you can help me to trap Lieutenant Hale, Miss Dixon, we'll go partners in the reward. I know you'd be my partner, now wouldn't you? Don't be shy, but say yes.' And he jumped on the bus, and I saw his ugly face leering at me with a wicked smile to think how he'd had the last word of plaguing. Margaret was made very uncomfortable by this account of Dixon's. "'Have you told Frederick?' asked she. "'No,' said Dixon. "'I were uneasy in my mind at knowing that bad Leonard's was in town, but there was so much else to think about that I did not dwell on it at all. But when I saw Master sitting so stiff, and with his eyes so glazed and sad, I thought it might rouse him to have to think of Master Frederick's safety a bit, so I told him all, though I blushed to say how a young man had been speaking to me. And it has done Master good. And if we're to keep Master Frederick in hiding, he would have to go, poor fellow, before Mr. Bell came. Oh, I'm not afraid of Mr. Bell, but I am afraid of this Leonard's. We must tell Frederick. What did Leonard's look like? A bad-looking fellow, I can assure you, miss, whiskers such as I should be ashamed to wear, they are so red. And for all he said he'd got a confidential situation, he was dressed in a fustian, just like a working man. It was evident that Frederick must go. Go, too, when he had so completely vaulted into his place in the family, and promised to be such a stay and staff to his father and sister. Go, when his cares for the living mother, and sorrow for the dead, seemed to make him one of those peculiar people who are bound to us by a fellow-love for them that are taken away. Just as Margaret was thinking all this, sitting over the drawing-room fire, 
her father restless and uneasy under the pressure of this newly aroused fear, of which he had not as yet spoken, Frederick came in. His brightness dimmed, but the extreme violence of his grief passed away. He came up to Margaret and kissed her forehead. "'How wan you look, Margaret,' he said in a low voice. "'You have been thinking of everybody, and no one has thought of you. Lie on this sofa. There is nothing for you to do.' "'That is the worst,' said Margaret, in a sad whisper. But she went and lay down, and her brother covered her feet with a shawl, and then sat on the ground by her side, and the two began to talk in a subdued tone. Margaret told him all that Dixon had related of her interview with young Leonard's. Frederick's lips closed with a long whoo of dismay. "'I should just like to have it out with that young fellow. A worse sailor was never on board ship, nor much a worse man, either. I declare, Margaret, you know the circumstances of the whole affair.' "'Yes, Mamma told me.' "'Well, when all the sailors who were good for anything were indignant with our captain, this fellow, to curry favour, pah, and to think of his being here. Oh, if he'd a notion I was within twenty miles of him, he'd fared me out to pay off old grudges. I'd rather anybody had the hundred pounds they think I am worth than that rascal. What a pity poor old Dixon could not be persuaded to give me up, and make a provision for her old age. Oh, Frederick, hush, don't talk so. Mr. Hale came towards them eager and trembling. He had overheard what they were saying. He took Frederick's hand in both of his. "'My boy, you must go. It is very bad, but I see you must. You have done all you could. You have been a comfort to her.' "'Oh, Papa, must he go?' said Margaret, pleading against her own conviction of necessity. "'I declare, I've a good mind to face it out, and stand my trial. If I could only pick up my evidence, I can't endure the thought of being in the power of such a blackguard as Leonard's. I could almost have enjoyed, in other circumstances, this stolen visit. It has had all the charm which the French women attribute to forbidden pleasures. One of the earliest things I can remember, said Margaret, was your being in some great disgrace, Fred, for stealing apples. We had plenty of our own trees loaded with them, but someone had told you that stolen fruit tasted sweetest, which you took au pied de la lettre, and went off a-robbing. You have not changed your feelings much since then. Yes, you must go, repeated Mr. Hale, answering Margaret's question, which she had asked some time ago. His thoughts were fixed on one subject, and it was an effort for him to follow the zigzag remarks of his children, an effort which he did not make. Margaret and Frederick looked at each other. That quick, momentary sympathy would be theirs no longer if he went away. So much was understood through eyes that could not be put into words. Both coursed the same thought till it was lost in sadness. Frederick shook it off first. "'Do you know, Margaret, I was very nearly giving both Dixon and myself a good fright this afternoon. I was in my bedroom. I had heard a ring at the front door— but I thought the ringer must have done his business and gone away long ago, so I was on the point of making my appearance in the passage when, as I opened my room door, I saw Dixon coming downstairs, and she frowned and kicked me into hiding again. I kept the door open, and heard a message given to some man that was in my father's study, and that then went away. Who could it have been? 
some of the shopmen very likely said margaret indifferently there was a the little quiet man who came up for orders about two o'clock but this was not a little man a great powerful fellow and it was past four when he was here it was mr thornton said mr hale they were glad to have drawn him into the conversation mr thornton said margaret a little surprised i thought well little one what did you think asked frederick as she did not finish her sentence oh only said she reddening and looking straight at him i fancied you meant some one of a different class not a gentleman somebody come on an errand he looked like one of that kind said frederick carelessly i took him for a shopman and he turns out a manufacturer margaret was silent she remembered how at first before she knew his character she had spoken and thought of him just as frederick was doing it was but a natural impression that was made upon him and yet she was a little annoyed by it she was unwilling to speak she wanted to make frederick understand what kind of person mr thornton was but she was tongue-tied mr hale went on he came to offer any assistance in his power i believe but i could not see him i told dixon to ask him if he would like to see you i think i asked her to find you and you would go to him i don't know what i said he has been a very agreeable acquaintance has he not asked frederick throwing the question like a ball for any one to catch who chose a very kind friend said margaret when her father did not answer frederick was silent for a time at last he spoke margaret it is painful to think i can never thank those who have shown you kindness your acquaintances and mine must be separate unless indeed i run the chances of a court-martial or unless you and my father would come to spain he threw out this last suggestion as a kind of feeler and then suddenly made the plunge you don't know how i wish you would i have a good position the chance of a better continued he reddening like a girl that dolores barber that i was telling you of margaret i only wish you knew her i am sure you would like no love is the right word like is so poor you would love her father if you knew her she is not eighteen but if she is in the same mind another year she is to be my wife mr barber won't let us call it an engagement but if you would come you would find friends everywhere besides dolores think of it father margaret be on my side no no more removals for me said mr hale one removal has cost me my wife no more removals in this life she will be here and i will stay out my appointed time oh frederick said margaret tell us more about her i never thought of this but i am so glad you will have some one to love and care for you out there tell us all about it in the first place she is a roman catholic that's the only objection i anticipated but my father's change of opinion nay margaret don't sigh margaret had reason to sigh a little more before the conversation ended frederick himself was roman catholic in fact though not in profession as yet this was then the reason why his sympathy in her extreme distress at her father's leaving the church had been so faintly expressed in his letters she had thought it was the carelessness of a sailor 
but the truth was that even then he was himself inclined to give up the form of religion into which he had been baptized only that his opinions were tending in exactly the opposite direction to those of his father how much love had to do with this change not even frederick himself could have told margaret gave up talking about this branch of the subject at last and returning to the fact of the engagement she began to consider it in some fresh light but for her sake fred you surely will try and clear yourself of the exaggerated charges brought against you even if the charge of mutiny itself be true if there were to be a court-martial and you could find your witnesses you might at any rate show how your disobedience to authority was because that authority was unworthily exercised mr hale roused himself up to listen to his son's answer in the first place margaret who is to hunt up my witnesses all of them are sailors drafted off to other ships except those whose evidence would go for very little as they took part or sympathized in the affair in the next place allow me to tell you you don't know what a court-martial is and consider it an assembly where justice is administered instead of what it really is a court where authority weighs nine-tenths in the balance and evidence forms only the other tenth in such cases evidence itself can hardly escape being influenced by the prestige of authority but is it not worth trying to see how much evidence might be discovered and arrayed on your behalf at present all those who knew you formerly believe you guilty without any shadow of excuse you have never tried to justify yourself and we have never known where to seek for proofs of your justification now for miss barbara's sake make your conduct as clear as you can in the eye of the world she may not care for it she has i am sure that trust in you that we all have but you ought not to let her ally herself to one under such a serious charge without showing the world exactly how it is you stand you disobeyed authority that was bad but to have stood by without a word or act while the authority was brutally used would have been infinitely worse people know what you did but not the motives that elevated out of a crime into a heroic protection of the weak for dolores's sake they ought to know but how must i make them know i am not sufficiently sure of the purity and justice of those who would be my judges to give myself up to a court-martial even if i could bring a whole array of truth-speaking witnesses i can't send a bellman about to cry aloud and proclaim in the streets what you are pleased to call my heroism no one would read a pamphlet of self-justification so long after the deed even if i put one out will you consult a lawyer as to your chances of exculpation asked margaret looking up and turning very red i must first catch my lawyer and have a look at him and see how i like him before i make him into my confidant many a briefless barrister might twist his conscience into thinking that he could earn a hundred pounds very easily by doing a good action in giving me a criminal up to justice nonsense frederick because i know a lawyer on whose honour i can rely of whose cleverness in his profession people speak very highly and who would i think take a good deal of trouble for any of of aunt shaw's relations mr henry lennox papa i think it is a good idea said mr hale but don't propose anything which will detain frederick in england don't for your mother's sake you could go to london to-morrow evening by a night train continued margaret warming up into her plan 
he must go to-morrow i'm afraid papa said she tenderly we fixed that because of mr bell and dixon's disagreeable acquaintance yes i must go to-morrow said frederick decidedly mr hale groaned i can't bear to part with you and yet i am miserable with anxiety as long as you stop here well then said margaret listen to my plan he gets to london on friday morning i will you might no it would be better for me to give him a note to mr lennox you will find him at his chambers in the temple i will write down a list of all the names i can remember on board the orion i could leave it with him to ferret them out he is edith's husband's brother isn't he i remember you naming him in your letters i have money in barbara's hands i can pay a pretty long bill if there is any chance of success money dear father that i had meant for a different purpose so i shall only consider it as borrowed from you and margaret don't do that said margaret you won't risk it if you do and it will be a risk only if it's worth trying you can sail from london as well as from liverpool to be sure little goose wherever i feel water heaving under a plank there i feel at home i'll pick up some craft or other to take me off never fear i won't stay twenty-four hours in london away from you on the one hand and from somebody else on the other it was rather a comfort to margaret that frederick took it in his head to look over her shoulder as she wrote to mr lennox if she had not been thus compelled to write steadily and concisely on she might have hesitated over many a word and been puzzled to choose between many an expression in the awkwardness of being the first to resume the intercourse of which the concluding event had been so unpleasant to both sides however the note was taken from her before she even had time to look it over and treasured up in a pocket-book out of which fell a long lock of black hair the sight of which caused frederick's eyes to glow with pleasure now you would like to see that wouldn't you said he no you must wait till you see her herself she is too perfect to be known by fragments no mean brick shall be a specimen of the building of my palace End of chapter 31「thirty two of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter thirty two. Miss Chances. What? Remain to be denounced, dragged, it may be, in chains. Werner. All the next day they sat together, they three. Mr. Hale hardly ever spoke but when his children asked him questions, and forced him, as it were, into the present. Frederick's grief was no more to be seen or heard. The first paroxysm had passed over, and now he was ashamed of having been so battered down by emotion, and though his sorrow for the loss of his mother was a deep, real feeling, and would last out his life, it was never to be spoken of again. Margaret, not so passionate at first, was more suffering now at times she cried a good deal and her manner even when speaking on indifferent things had a mournful tenderness about it which was deepened whenever her looks fell on frederick and she thought of his rapidly approaching departure she was glad he was going on her father's account however much she might grieve over it on her own 
the anxious terror in which mr hale lived lest his son should be detected and captured far outweighed the pleasure he derived from his presence the nervousness had increased since mrs hale's death probably because he dwelt upon it more exclusively he started at every unusual sound and was never comfortable unless frederick sat out of the immediate view of any one entering the room towards evening he said you will go with frederick to the station margaret i shall want to know he is safely off you will bring me word that he is clear of milton at any rate certainly said margaret i shall like it if you won't be lonely without me papa no no i should always be fancying some one had known him and that he had been stopped unless you could tell me you had seen him off and go to the outwood station it is quite near and not so many people about take a cab there there is less risk of being seen what time is your train fred ten minutes past six very nearly dark so what will you do margaret oh i can manage i am getting very brave and very hard it is a well-lighted road all the way home if it should be dark but i was out last week much later margaret was thankful when the parting was over the parting from the dead mother and the living father she hurried frederick into the cab in order to shorten a scene which she saw was so bitterly painful to her father who would accompany his son as he took his last look at his mother partly in consequence of this and partly owing to one of the very common mistakes in the railway guide as to the times when trains arrive at the smaller stations they found on reaching outwood that they had nearly twenty minutes to spare the booking office was not open so they could not even take the ticket they accordingly went down the flight of steps that led to the level of the ground below the railway there was a broad cinder path diagonally crossing a field which lay alongside of the carriage road and they went there to walk backwards and forwards for the few minutes they had to spare margaret's hand lay in frederick's arm he took hold of it affectionately margaret i am going to consult mr lennox as to the chance of exculpating myself so that i may return to england whenever i choose more for your sake than for the sake of any one else i can't bear to think of your lonely position if anything should happen to my father he looks sadly changed terribly shaken i wish you could get him to think of the cadiz plan for many reasons what could you do if he were taken away you have no friend near we are curiously bare of relations margaret could hardly keep from crying at the tender anxiety with which frederick was bringing before her an event which she herself felt was not very improbable so severely had the cares of the last few months told upon mr hale but she tried to rally as she said there have been such strange unexpected changes in my life during these last two years that i feel more than ever that it is not worth while to calculate too closely what i should do if any future event took place i try to think only upon the present she paused they were standing still for a moment close on the field side of the stile leading to the road the setting sun fell on their faces frederick held her hand in his and looked with wistful anxiety into her face reading there more care and trouble than she would betray by words she went on we shall often write to one another and i will promise for i see it will set your mind at ease to tell you every worry i have papa is she started a little a hardly visible start but frederick felt the sudden motion of the hand he held 
and turned his full face to the road, along which a horseman was slowly riding, just passing the very stile where they stood. Margaret bowed. Her bow was stiffly returned. "'Who is that?' said Frederick, almost before he was out of hearing. Margaret was a little drooping, a little flushed, as she replied, "'Mr. Thornton, you saw him before, you know.' "'Only his back.' He is an unprepossessing-looking fellow. What a scowl he has! Something has happened to vex him, said Margaret, apologetically. You would not have thought him unprepossessing if you had seen him with Mamma. I fancy it must be time to go and take my ticket. If I had known how dark it would be, we wouldn't have sent back the cab, Margaret. Oh, don't fidget about that. I can take a cab here, if I like, or go back by the railroad, when I should have shops and people and lamps all the way from the Milton Station House. Don't think of me. Take care of yourself. I am sick with the thought that Leonard's may be in the same train with you. Look well into the carriage before you get in. They went back to the station. Margaret insisted upon going into the full light of the flaring gas inside to take the ticket. Some idle-looking young men were lounging about with the station-master. Margaret thought she had seen the face of one of them before and returned him a proud look of offended dignity for his somewhat impertinent stare of undisguised admiration. She went hastily to her brother, who was standing outside, and took hold of his arm. "'Have you got your bag? Let us walk about here, on the platform,' said she, a little flurried at the idea of so soon being left alone, and her bravery oozing out rather faster than she liked to acknowledge, even to herself. She heard a step following them along the flags. It stopped when they stopped, looking out along the line and hearing the whiz of the coming train. They did not speak, their hearts were too full. Another moment and the train would be here, a minute more and he would be gone. Margaret almost repented the urgency with which she had entreated him to go to London. It was throwing more chances of detection in his way. If he had sailed for Spain by Liverpool, he might have been off in two or three hours. Frederick turned round right facing the lamp, where the gas started up in a vivid anticipation of the train. A man in the dress of a railway porter started forward, a bad-looking man, who seemed to have drunk himself into a state of brutality, although his senses were in perfect order. "'By your leave, miss,' said he, pushing Margaret rudely on one side, and seizing Frederick by the collar. "'Your name is Hale, I believe.' In an instant, how, Margaret did not see, for everything danced before her eyes. But by some slight of wrestling, Frederick had tripped him up, and he fell from the height of three or four feet, which the platform was elevated above the space of soft ground, by the side of the railroad. There he lay. "'Run! Run!' gasped Margaret. "'The train is here. It was Leonard's, was it? Oh, run! I will carry your bag!' And she took him by the arm to push him along with all her feeble force. A door was opening in a carriage. He jumped in, and as he leant out to say, "'God bless you, Margaret,' the train rushed past her, and she was left standing alone. She was so terribly sick and faint that she was thankful to be able to turn to the ladies' waiting-room and sit down for an instant. At first she could do nothing but gasp for breath. It was such a hurry, such a sickening alarm, such a near chance. If the train had not been there at the moment— the man would have jumped up again and called for assistance to arrest him. She wondered if the man had got up. She tried to remember if she had seen him move. 
she wondered if he could have been seriously hurt. She ventured out. The platform was all right, but still quite deserted. She went to the end and looked over, somewhat fearfully. No one was there. And then she was glad she had made herself go and inspect, for otherwise terrible thoughts would have haunted her dreams. And even as it was, she was so trembling and affrighted that she felt she could not walk home along the road, which did indeed seem lonely and dark, as she gazed down upon it from the blaze of the station. She would wait till the down-train passed and take her seat in it. But what if Leonard's recognized her as Frederick's companion? She peered about, before venturing into the booking-office to take her ticket. There were only some railway officials standing about, and talking loud to one another. "'So Leonard's been drinking again,' said one, seeming in authority. "'He'll need all his boasted influence to keep his place this time.' "'Where is he?' asked another, while Margaret, her back towards them, was counting her change with trembling fingers, not daring to turn round until she heard the answer to this question. "'I don't know. He came in not five minutes ago with some long story or other about a fall he'd had, swearing awfully, and wanted to borrow some money from me to go to London by the next up-train. He made all sorts of tipsy promises, but I'd something else to do than listen to him. I told him to go about his business, and he went off at the front door. "'He's at the nearest vault, I'll be bound,' said the first speaker. "'Your money would have gone there, too, if you'd been such a fool as to lend it.' "'Catch me! I knew better what his London meant. Why, he has never paid me off that five shillings!' And so they went on. And now all Margaret's anxiety was for the train to come. She hid herself once more in the ladies' waiting-room, and fancied every noise was Leonard's step, every loud and boisterous voice was his. But no one came near her until the train drew up, when she was civilly helped into a carriage by a porter, into whose face she durst not look till they were in motion, and then she saw that it was not Leonard's. End of chapter 32《Chapter Thirty Three of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Thirty Three. Peace. Sleep on, my love, in thy cold bed, never to be disquieted. My last good night, thou wilt not wake till I thy fate shall overtake. Doctor King. Home seemed unnaturally quiet after all this terror and noisy commotion. Her father had seen all due preparation made for her refreshment on her return, and then sat down again in his accustomed chair, to fall into one of his sad waking dreams. Dixon had got Mary Higgins to scold and direct in the kitchen, and her scolding was not the less energetic because it was delivered in an angry whisper, for, speaking above her breath, she would have thought irreverent as long as there was any one dead lying in the house. Margaret had resolved not to mention the crowning and closing affright to her father. There was no use in speaking about it. It had ended well. The only thing to be feared was lest Leonard's should in some way borrow money enough to effect his purpose of following Frederick to London, and hunting him out there. But there were immense chances against the success of any such plan, and Margaret determined not to torment herself by thinking of what she could do nothing to prevent. Frederick would be as much on his guard as she could put him, in a day or two, at most, he would be safely out of England. "'I suppose we shall hear from Mr. Bell to-morrow,' said Margaret. "'Yes,' replied her father. "'I suppose so. 
if he can come he will be here to-morrow evening i should think if he cannot come i shall ask mr thornton to go with me to the funeral i cannot go alone i should break down utterly don't ask mr thornton papa let me go with you said margaret impetuously you my dear women do not generally go no because they can't control themselves women of our class don't go because they have no power over their emotions and yet are ashamed of showing them poor women go and don't care if they are seen overwhelmed with grief but i promise you papa that if you will let me go i will be no trouble don't have a stranger and leave me out dear papa if mr bell can't come i shall go i won't urge my wish against your will if he does mr bell could not come he had the gout it was a most affectionate letter and expressed great and true regret for his inability to attend he hoped to come and pay them a visit soon if they would have him his milton property required some looking after and his agent had written him to say that his presence was absolutely necessary or else he had avoided coming near milton as long as he could and now the only thing that would reconcile him to this necessary visit was the idea that he should see and might possibly be able to comfort his old friend margaret had all the difficulty in the world to persuade her father not to invite mr thornton she had an indescribable repugnance to this step being taken the night before the funeral came a stately note from mrs thornton to miss hale saying that at her son's desire their carriage should attend the funeral if it would not be disagreeable to the family margaret tossed the note to her father oh don't let us have these forms said she let us go alone you and me papa they don't care for us or else he would have offered to go himself and not have proposed this sending an empty carriage i thought you were so extremely averse to his going margaret said mr hale in some surprise and so i am i don't want him to come at all and i should especially dislike the idea of our asking him but this seems such a mockery of mourning that i did not expect it from him she startled her father by bursting into tears she had been so subdued in her grief so thoughtful for others so gentle and patient in all things that he could not understand her impatient ways to-night she seemed agitated and restless and at all the tenderness which her father in his turn now lavished upon her she only cried the more she passed so bad a night that she was ill prepared for the additional anxiety caused by a letter received from frederick mr lennox was out of town his clerk said that he would return by the following tuesday at the latest that he might possibly be at home on monday consequently after some consideration frederick had determined upon remaining in london a day or two longer he had thought of coming down to milton again the temptation had been very strong but the idea of mr bell domesticated in his father's house and the alarm he had received at the last moment at the railway station had made him resolve to stay in london margaret might be assured he would take every precaution against being tracked by leonard's margaret was thankful that she received this letter while her father was absent in her mother's room if he had been present he would have expected her to read it aloud to him and it would have raised in him a state of nervous alarm which she could have found it impossible to soothe away there was not merely the fact which disturbed her excessively of frederick's detention in london but there were allusions to the recognition at the last moment at milton and the possibility of a pursuit 
which made her blood run cold. And how then would it have affected her father? Many a time did Margaret repent of having suggested, and urged on, the plan of consulting Mr. Lennox. At the moment it had seemed as if it would occasion so little delay, add so little to the apparently small chances of detection, and yet everything that had since occurred tended to make it so undesirable. Margaret battled hard against this regret of hers for what could not now be helped, this self-reproach for having said what at the time appeared to be wise, but which after events were proving to have been so foolish. But her father was in too depressed a state of mind and body to struggle healthily. He would succumb to all the causes for morbid regret over what could not be recalled. Margaret summoned up all her forces to her aid. Her father seemed to have forgotten that they had any reason to expect a letter from Frederick that morning. He was absorbed in one idea. That last visible token of the presence of his wife was to be carried away from him, and hidden from their sight. He trembled pitifully as the undertaker's man was arranging his crape draperies around him. He looked wistfully at Margaret, and, when released, he tottered toward her, murmuring, "'Pray for me, Margaret. I have no strength left in me. I cannot pray. I give her up because I must. I try to bear it. Indeed I do, for I know it is God's will. But I cannot see why she died. Pray for me, Margaret, that I may have faith to pray. It is a great strait, my child. Margaret sat by him in the coach, almost supporting him in her arms, and repeating all the noble verses of holy comforts, or texts expressive of faithful resignation, that she could remember. Her voice never faltered, and she herself gained strength by doing this. Her father's lips moved after her, repeating the well-known texts as her words suggested them. It was terrible to see the patient's struggling effort to obtain the resignation which he had not the strength to take into his heart as part of himself. Margaret's fortitude nearly gave way as Dixon, with a slight motion of her hand, directed her notice to Nicholas Higgins and his daughter, standing a little aloof, but deeply attentive to the ceremonial. Nicholas wore his usual fustian clothes, but had a bit of black stuff sewn round his hat, a mark of mourning which he had never shown to his daughter Bessie's memory. But Mr. Hale saw nothing. He went on repeating to himself, mechanically as it were, all the funeral service as it was read by the officiating clergyman. He sighed twice or thrice when all was ended, and then, putting his hand on Margaret's arm, he mutely entreated to be led away, as if he were blind, and she his faithful guide. Dixon sobbed aloud. She covered her face with her handkerchief, and was so absorbed in her own grief that she did not perceive that the crowd, attracted on such occasions, was dispersing, till she was spoken to by some one close at hand. It was Mr. Thornton. He had been present all the time, standing, with head bent, behind a group of people, so that, in fact, no one recognized him. "'I beg your pardon, but can you tell me how Mr. Hale is?' and Miss Hale, too. I should like to know how they both are. Of course, sir, they are much as is to be expected. Master is terribly broken down. Miss Hale bears up better than likely. Mr. Thornton would rather have heard that she was suffering the natural sorrow. In the first place, 
there was selfishness enough in him to have taken pleasure in the idea that his great love might come in to comfort and console her much the same kind of strange passionate pleasure which comes stinging through a mother's heart when her drooping infant nestles close to her and is dependent upon her for everything but this delicious vision of what might have been in which in spite of all margaret's repulse he would have indulged only a few days ago was miserably disturbed by the recollection of what he had seen near the outwood station miserably disturbed that is not strong enough he was haunted by the remembrance of the handsome young man with whom she stood in an attitude of such familiar confidence and the remembrance shot through him like an agony till it made him clench his hands tight in order to subdue the pain at that late hour so far from home it took a great moral effort to galvanize his trust erstwhile so pure in margaret's pure and exquisite maidenliness into life as soon as the effort ceased his trust dropped down dead and powerless and all sorts of wild fancies chased each other like dreams through his mind here was a little piece of miserable gnawing confirmation she bore up better than likely under this grief she had then some hope to look to so bright that even in her affectionate nature it could come in to lighten the dark hours of a daughter newly made motherless yes he knew how she would love had he not loved her without gaining that instinctive knowledge of what capabilities were in her her soul would walk in glorious sunlight if any man was worthy by his power of loving to win back her love even in her mourning she would rest with a peaceful faith upon his sympathy his sympathy whose that other man's and that it was another was enough to make mr thornton's pale grave face grow doubly wan and stern at dixon's answer i suppose i may call he said coldly on mr hale i mean he will perhaps admit me after to-morrow or so he spoke as if the answer were a matter of indifference to him but it was not so for all his pain he longed to see the author of it although he hated margaret at times when he thought of that gentle familiar attitude and all the attendant circumstances he had a restless desire to renew her picture in his mind a longing for the very atmosphere she breathed he was in the charybdis of passion and must perforce circle and circle ever nearer round the fatal centre i dare say sir master will see you he was very sorry to have to deny you the other day but the circumstances was not agreeable just then for some reason or other dixon never named this interview that she had with mr thornton to margaret it might have been mere chance but so it was that margaret never heard that he had attended her poor mother's funeral End of chapter thirty three chapter thirty four of north and south by elizabeth gaskell this librivox recording is in the public domain read by marianne chapter thirty four false and true truth will never fail thee never though thy bark be tempest driven though each plank be rent and riven truth will bear thee on for ever anonymous the bearing up better than likely was a terrible strain upon margaret sometimes she thought she must give way and cry out with pain 
as the sudden sharp thought came across her, even during her apparently cheerful conversations with her father, that she had no longer a mother. About Frederick, too, there was great uneasiness. The Sunday Post intervened, and interfered with their London letters, and on Tuesday Margaret was surprised and disheartened to find that there was still no letter. She was quite in the dark as to his plans, and her father was miserable at all this uncertainty. It broke in upon his lately acquired habit of sitting still in one easy chair for half a day together. He kept pacing up and down the room, then out of it, and she heard him upon the landing opening and shutting the bedroom doors, without any apparent object. She tried to tranquilize him by reading aloud, but it was evident he could not listen for long together. How thankful she was, then, that she had kept to herself the additional cause for anxiety produced by their encounter with Leonard's. She was thankful to hear Mr. Thornton announced. His visit would force her father's thoughts into another channel. He came up straight to her father, whose hands he took and wrung without a word, holding them in his for a minute or two, during which time his face, his eyes, his look, told of more sympathy than could be put into words. Then he turned to Margaret. Not better than likely did she look. Her stately beauty was dimmed with much watching and with many tears. The expression on her countenance was of gentle, patient sadness, nay, of positive, present suffering. He had not meant to greet her otherwise than with his late studied coldness of demeanour, but he could not help going up to her as she stood a little aside, rendered timid by the uncertainty of his manner of late, and saying the few necessary commonplace words, in so tender a voice, that her eyes filled with tears, and she turned away to hide her emotion. She took her work and sat down very quiet and silent. Mr. Thornton's heart beat quick and strong, and for the time he utterly forgot the outwood lane. He tried to talk to Mr. Hale, and, his presence always a certain kind of pleasure to Mr. Hale, as his power and decision made him, and his opinions, a safe, sure port, was unusually agreeable to her father, as Margaret saw. Presently Dixon came to the door, and said, "'Miss Hale, you are wanted.' Dixon's manner was so flurried that Margaret turned sick at heart. Something had happened to Fred. She had no doubt of that. It was well that her father and Mr. Thornton were so much occupied by their conversation. "'What is it, Dixon?' asked Margaret, the moment she had shut the drawing-room door. "'Come this way, miss,' said Dixon, opening the door of what had been Mrs. Hale's bedchamber, now Margaret's, for her father refused to sleep there again after his wife's death. "'It's nothing, miss,' said Dixon, choking a little. "'Only a police inspector. He wants to see you, miss. But I dare say it's about nothing at all.' "'Did he name?' asked Margaret, almost inaudibly. "'No, miss.' He named nothing. He only asked if you lived here, and if he could speak to you. Martha went to the door, and let him in. She has shown him into Master's study. I went to him myself, to try if that would do. But no, it's you, miss, he wants. Margaret did not speak again till her hand was on the lock of the study door. Here she turned round and said, Take care Papa does not come down. Mr. Thornton is with him now. The inspector was almost daunted by the haughtiness of her manner as she entered. There was something of indignation expressed in her countenance, but so kept down and controlled that it gave her a superb air of disdain. 
There was no surprise, no curiosity. She stood awaiting the opening of his business there. Not a question did she ask. "'I beg your pardon, ma'am, but my duty obliges me to ask you a few plain questions. A man has died at the infirmary, in consequence of a fall, received at Outwood Station, between the hours of five and six on Thursday evening, the twenty-sixth instant. At the time, this fall did not seem of much consequence, but it was rendered fatal, the doctors say, by the presence of some internal complaint, and the man's own habit of drinking. The dark eyes, gazing straight into the inspector's face, dilated a little. Otherwise there was no motion perceptible to his experienced observation. Her lips swelled out into a richer curve than ordinary, owing to the enforced tension of the muscles, but he did not know what was their usual appearance, so as to recognize the unwanted, sullen defiance of the firm sweeping lines. She never blenched or trembled. She fixed him with her eye. Now, as he paused before going on, she said, almost as if she were encouraging him in telling his tale, "'Well, go on.' "'It is supposed that an inquest will have to be held. There is some slight evidence to prove that the blow, or push, or scuffle that caused the fall, was provoked by this poor fellow's half-tipsy impertinence to a young lady, walking with the man who pushed the deceased over the edge of the platform, this much was observed by someone on the platform, who, however, thought no more about the matter, as the blow seemed of slight consequence. There is also some reason to identify the lady with yourself, in which case— I was not there, said Margaret, still keeping her expressionless eyes fixed on his face with the unconscious look of a sleepwalker. The inspector bowed, but did not speak. The lady standing before him showed no emotion— no fluttering fear, no anxiety, no desire to end the interview. The information he had received was very vague. One of the porters, rushing out to be in readiness for the train, had seen a scuffle, at the other end of the platform, between Leonard's and a gentleman accompanied by a lady, but heard no noise, and before the train had got to its full speed after starting, he had been almost knocked down by the headlong run of the enraged, half-intoxicated Leonard's, swearing and cursing awfully. He had not thought any more about it, till his evidence was routed out by the inspector, who, on making some farther inquiry at the railway station, had heard from the station-master that a young lady and gentleman had been there about that hour, a lady remarkably handsome, and said, by some grocer's assistant present at the time, to be a Miss Hale, living at Crampton, whose family dealt at his shop. There was no certainty that the lady and gentleman were identical with the other pair, but there was great probability. Leonard's himself had gone, half mad with rage and pain, to the nearest gin-place for comfort, and his tipsy words had not been attended to by the busy waiters there. They, however, remembered his starting up and cursing himself for not having sooner thought of the electric telegraph, for some purpose unknown, and they believed that he left with the idea of going there. On his way, overcome by pain or drink, he had laid down in the road, where the police had found him and taken him to the infirmary. There he had never recovered sufficient consciousness to give any distinct account of his fall, although once or twice he had glimmerings of sense sufficient to make the authorities send for the nearest magistrate, in hopes that he might be able to take down the dying man's deposition of the cause of his death. But when the magistrate had come, 
he was rambling about being at sea and mixing up names of captains and lieutenants in an indistinct manner with those of his fellow porters at the railway and his last words were a curse on the cornish trick which had he said made him a hundred pounds poorer than he ought to have been the inspector ran all this over in his mind the vagueness of the evidence to prove that margaret had been at the station the unflinching calm denial which she gave such a supposition she stood awaiting his next word with a composure that appeared supreme then ma'am i have your denial that you were the lady accompanying the gentleman who struck the blow or gave the push which caused the death of this poor man a quick sharp pain went through margaret's brain oh god that i knew frederick were safe a deep observer of human countenances might have seen the momentary agony shoot out of her great gloomy eyes like the torture of some creature brought to bay but the inspector though a very keen was not a very deep observer he was a little struck notwithstanding by the form of the answer which sounded like a mechanical repetition of her first reply not changed and modified in shape so as to meet his last question i was not there said she slowly and heavily and all this time she never closed her eyes never ceased from that glassy dreamlike stare his quick suspicions were aroused by this dull echo of her former denial it was as if she had forced herself to one untruth and had been stunned out of all power of varying it he put up his book of notes in a very deliberate manner then he looked up she had not moved any more than if she had been some great egyptian statue i hope you will not think me impertinent when i say that i may have to call on you again i may have to summon you to appear on the inquest and provide an alibi if my witnesses it was but one who had recognized her persist in deposing to your presence at the unfortunate event he looked at her sharply she was still perfectly quiet no change of color or darker shadow of guilt on her proud face he thought to have seen her wince he did not know margaret hale he was a little abashed by her regal composure it must have been a mistake of identity he went on it is very unlikely ma'am that i shall have to do anything of the kind i hope you will excuse me for doing what is only my duty although it may appear impertinent margaret bowed her head as he went towards the door her lips were stiff and dry she could not speak even the common words of farewell but suddenly she walked forwards and opened the study door and preceded him to the door of the house which she threw wide open for his exit she kept her eyes on him in the same dull fixed manner until he was fairly out of the house she shut the door and went halfway into the study then turned back as if moved by some passionate impulse and locked the door inside then she went into the study paused tottered forward paused again swayed for an instant where she stood and fell prone on the floor in a dead swoon End of chapter thirty four